You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. I'll get there in a moment. About three weeks ago when I preached on Friday afternoon before I preached, I received a text message from Steve Keller. He reminded me that when I was going to be coming into the pulpit that morning, that's next Sunday morning, uh, April 18th, that I would be preaching on the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's uh, famous response at the Diet of Worms. And as a church that stands firmly in the Reformed tradition, I thought it would be a good idea to mention that in a sermon or a prayer that upcoming Sunday. So I made a mental note of that. And since it was a mental note, I forgot it completely and did not do that. But as those who are eternally indebted to Martin Luther, we can't just let the 500th anniversary of such a day go by without talking about it a little bit, especially since now it can fit as an introduction to my sermon. For those of you who don't know, Martin Luther was actually officially excommunicated by Pope Leo X uh, several months prior to the Diet of Worms on January 3rd, 1521. And it was in September of 1520, actually, just a few months prior to that, that he was given a papal decree demanding that he recant his teaching. Since he was already excommunicated by the time the Diet of Worms started, excommunicated. The goal of Rome in having the Diet of Worms was more political. They were trying to lessen the influence of Luther's teaching. And so in the three and a half years since he had posted the 95 Theses and uh, his teaching had been growing tremendously popular in Germany and even spreading out from Germany. And even though Luther had been promised uh, safe passage to the Diet, to the Diet of Arms, he had every reason in that time to believe that his life was in danger. Um, he was not thought well of, we will say. On, on the ap afternoon of April 17th, 1521, Luther appeared before the Diet. Diet, by the way, just means assembly. Um, so, there's, so there's princes, princes and bishops, as well as Emperor Charles V. So he shows up there in front of this assembly. In the middle of the room is a table with a pile of his books laying on it. Johann Eck, the Pope's prosecutor, did not want to get into a debate with Luther, which was actually Luther's hope in going. So he asked him only two questions. He said, do you acknowledge yourself to be the author of these books, and do you stand by them, or will you recant? Luther, again, was hoping that he would have the opportunity to debate. That was, that was his intention. He'd been looking for that opportunity. And, and most scholars believe that it was at this time when he, when he heard the two questions asked in this way that he realized that he was not going to be given that opportunity and that his life was probably very much in danger. History does not actually record for us what many people might have presumed a loud, powerfully defiant Luther at this place. In fact, we are told that his responses to these questions were so soft that it was hard for many in the room to even hear him. In a soft voice, he responded, the books are all mine and I have written more. And to the second question, he confessed that he did not want to confirm or retract anything without considering further whether what he had written was truly in accord with Scripture. So he asked for time to consider these things further. And after a two-hour debate amongst themselves, the authorities present gave Luther one more day to consider recanting. The next day, April 18, 1521, at 4 p.m., the Diet resumed. Johann Eck opened the meeting by taking a bit of a jab at Luther and why it would take so long for such a learned professor like himself to respond to the simple questions he was given, and then asked him again to, quote, answer the question of his majesty, whose kindness you have experienced in seeking a time for thought. Will you defend or retract? Luther responded to this question, and if you look it up, with a really brilliant response that's too long for me to quote here, but he essentially divided his writings up into various categories and gave logical reasons why he could not just retract them, pointing out that there are many things that, that even the 
people present would agree with, so I can't retract those, right? And he pointed out several specific things that he wrote about uh, that he clearly could not retract and that they couldn't in good conscience actually ask him to retract because they, were shared, they, they shared those beliefs. He did admit, he did admit that he may have, uh, quote, may have attacked persons with more violence than was consistent with my profession. He did admit that, and that's definitely true if you've read much of Luther. He told them also in this speech that he invited them. He, he invited them to point out to him, just point out to me the things that you think I need to retract, and if they're not scriptural, then I would be glad to be, I would be the first one to throw them on the fire. But he essentially was trying to get them to engage in a debate with him. Because if they fell into this, they would have found themselves arguing against Scripture. So they were determined not to debate. Eck became angry and essentially accused Luther of not answering a simple question and was told, just give a simple answer. And it was only then that he uttered the famous words that mark a day that we would remember for 500 years. He said this, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness requires of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of Scripture, or by clear reason, since I believe neither the popes nor the councils by themselves, for it is clear that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the holy scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not withdraw anything, since it is neither safe nor right to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. On May 8th of 1521, 500 years ago yesterday, Charles V issued the Edict of Worms, officially labeling Martin Luther as a heretic and banning all of his writings. And the reason why I wanted to look at this today is not just because we, we shouldn't let an important anniversary like that go by without remembering it and thanking God for it, but also because it is a great introduction and an example of what we're going to be looking at from Philippians 3 today. If you remember last week, we began to look at the first few verses in Philippians 3. We talked about how, how Paul shifts uh, subjects in a way that seems odd to our ears. He shifts subjects into warning the Philippians how to live in the midst of false teachers. We saw in verse 1 of chapter 3 the need that we have to be reminded regularly of the same foundational gospel truths that will keep us safe when we continue to dig deeper and deeper into the same gospel truths that we hear week in and week out in sermon after sermon and we hear sung even in our songs and we refuse to look for new and innovative teaching and instead give ourselves to a deeper, consistent study of the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints, that is a protection for us. It's a safeguard for us. And then in verse 2, we see that we are to be watching cautiously. Paul tells us to look out. He says, look out, to be aware of false teachers around us, to know their character, to know their motivations, to know that they are working, that they're actively laboring and studying in order to trip you up, in order to destroy you, and that they are intent on adding to or taking away from the gospel, and that you need to be watching for that. You need to be looking out for it. And today we're going to get to the third point from last week, and, and we're going to expand it into the entirety of this sermon. Embracing gospel reality. Embracing gospel reality. And by this I mean knowing and living as though the gospel is true. Understanding that you are of the true faith. If you are a Christian, you are of the true faith. And then living like you have a life, living a life that demonstrates that you know it is the true faith. That's why we looked at the example of Martin Luther. He stood in an assembly of some of the highest officials in, within the culture 
dominating, politically powerful, false teaching that is the Roman Catholic Church. And he stood his ground. And why did he? Well, in his answer, because he had, quote, been conquered by the Scriptures. His conscience was captive by the Word of God. He knew that he was in the truth. And it didn't matter that all church councils stood against him, or even if it didn't matter if his life was forfeit. If, if you are fully embracing the reality of the gospel, such that you give no merit to anything that contradicts it, then no false teaching can ever have any power over you. It was easy for him to repudiate the teachings of the Catholic Church because they stood against what he knew to be true. Biblical gospel reality. Easy for him to, to at least stand by the truth to speak it. Not necessarily, I mean, there's a weight to knowing that your life might be in danger. But there's no power to dissuade him otherwise. In his mind, he knew he could look at the word and the books that he had written and said, this is what salvation is. This is what Christianity is, and it's not that. It's not that. And that's how Paul today in this passage wants to encourage the Philippians, and by extension, us. Reminding us about what true Christianity is, what it looks like, what we have already come to know to be true, so that false teaching has no sway over us. Let's look together. Let's look at this entire uh, passage beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. So again, in that passage, you see uh, those, those first two points from last week of the need to be reminded regularly and the need to be watching cautiously. And then as you get into verse 3, you see Paul's desire that they should embrace the gospel reality that they are those who are of the true faith. You are of the true faith. Look again, that's what he says in verse 3 where he says, for we are the circumcision. That's what he's referring to. If you remember from last week, we talked about that the specific group of false teachers that Paul has in mind here are the Judaizers. That's a false teaching that would affirm many gospel truths about who Jesus is, about why Jesus came. But they also wanted to add assimilation into Judaism as a necessary supplement to the gospel. The gospel is good, Jesus is good, but it's not quite enough. That's what Paul's comment about being mutilators of the flesh had to do with. There was a time where circumcision was, was the mark of the covenant people of God. It was a command by God to Old Testament Israel that set them apart from all other nations. But circumcision is not a sign of the church. It's not a sign for the church that God is redeeming from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And now to say that it is necessary to be right with God, you have to be circumcised to be right with God, is to actually mock the gospel and to proclaim that Christ's death and resurrection was not enough, that something else is required. 
That's what Paul proclaimed in Galatians 6, in verses 14 and 15 of Galatians 6. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Because of the all-sufficient atonement of Christ, any circumcision that is now done to try and merit favor from God in, in any way is nothing more than mutilating the flesh. It's on par with the prophets of 1 Kings 18 who would cut themselves, make cuts upon their flesh in order to get the attention of their gods. He's saying that's what circumcision is like if you're trying to do it to merit God's favor. It has more in common with false prophets than true. So when Paul says we are the circumcision, he is speaking of it in a way that, they would, that the Judaizers would have spoke about it. We are the ones. The church is the ones, are the ones who have the defining mark that shows that they are the true people of God. Not those with circumcision. He's saying they, in fact, we are the true circumcision. They are the flesh mutilators. We are the people of God. And you can see that Paul means for this to be encouragement to them in the face of false teachers because of that joining word for that he has there in verse 3 at the beginning of verse 3. So look, he says, look out in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Paul intends for them to be encouraged by the truth that they are the ones who are, in fact, God's people. False teaching should fall on the ears of those who know themselves to be God's true people like arrows fired against a stone wall. No effect. He shows this in verse 3 by pointing out three aspects of the gospel reality that he wants them to embrace and be encouraged to stand strong in, even in the midst of false teaching. And that's going to be our outline for the rest of our time today. Three aspects, three defining marks of gospel reality that define the true church. Marks that we need to remember in order to encourage ourselves in order to, and encourage the true church around us in the midst of a society permeating with false teaching. We have... Three points to this outline. Points one and two are going to be much shorter. Point three is going to be expanded on because that's what Paul does in verses four through seven. Three points. Number one, the church offers true worship. Number two, the church has a pure passion. Number three, the church has a sure confidence. So point one, the first mark of the true church that should encourage us as we live in this culture saturated with false teaching is true worship. True worship. And you can see that right there in verse three. It says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. The word that Paul uses for worship here can be more, uh, more literally defined as, as rendering service unto. So we're, we're not talking about uh, the word for worship or worship of the way we generally talk about the worship service, like um, singing songs of adoration or magnifying his name through words and through our words and through our thoughts. Although this is certainly an aspect of this idea of rendering service when we gather, but this has uh, more in mind the idea of our daily living before God, our daily living before God, dying to ourselves, giving of ourselves joyfully and sacrificially. The type of worship that was going on here yesterday morning, as so many of you showed up here and you joyfully served alongside one another, taking care of the property that God's entrusted to us, no one was out here trying to earn God's favor. When Brett asked for people to come in and help with that, he didn't say anything about how, and this is a way to guarantee your salvation. You know, there's no 
There is no part of the gospel that is preached here in this church that includes the need to do work for God in order to finish the work of salvation in your life. It's not repent, believe the gospel, and do some light landscaping, and you will be saved. That is not what we preach. What was happening here yesterday was worship. It was a community of believers who know that they have been saved from the just punishment that their sins deserve, finding yet another way that they can render service to the king whom they love and long to serve. When you see this service, this type of service in your life, it is protection against false teaching. You are in that, in that you are demonstrating that, that you know that there is nothing else you need to do for him. There's nothing else that you need to do for him. You're just living out of gratitude now. Paul, Paul is specifically contrasting this idea of those who worship by the Spirit of God with the Judaizers who performed actions in order to win favor with God, in order to try and be right with him. Paul is saying, fellow Christian, we are the true circumcision. We are God's true people. Those who render their service joyfully unto God through the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. We are able to do this. We are able to serve God when no one is looking to serve God with no ulterior motive whatsoever because the indwelling Holy Spirit is the seal on our life of a person who has already been justified and is now merely waiting for final glorification. It doesn't matter what trial we might be going through. Since we understand in the gospel, we understand that Jesus Christ lived died, rose again for us. We joyfully serve him with no need, no need, no expectation that he's going to, to bring a trial to an end or give us some sort of better salvation than he's already given us. That doesn't matter to us. We've died to this life. This life is forfeit. Anything good that happens to us here is just blessing on top of blessing. And anything bad, bad that happens, any trial that happens only serves now to make eternity better for us. And, and the indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us to live according to this reality. We render true worship. We render true service to God. A true worship, a true service to God that wants nothing else in return. It's just gratefulness for what has already been done for us. And God gives us His Spirit. God gives us His Spirit to ensure that this continues on throughout our lives. So even when we are tempted to forget, even when we're tempted to try and serve God in a selfish way, the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us responds to the Spirit-inspired words of Scripture as we read them and as they are preached to us and we continue on in loving service and devotion. This is what it means to worship by the Spirit. And this strongly, this strongly combats a pervasive false teaching present today coming out of many places in the Pentecostal church and through the health and wealth movement. The teaching that worshiping by the Spirit isn't this, but rather has something to do with being more emotional when you sing or having some sort of added energy that comes over you and takes control over you and makes you more passionate so that you almost lose control over yourself when you're, when you're singing or when you're in the worship service. Or worse yet, to use the Spirit in some way to get God to work on your behalf. So that you're connected with the Spirit in such a way that your faith will cause God to bless you in material ways. By giving you more money or healing your diseases or fixing things in your life so they're easier. Making you more temporally happier. That's a far cry from what Paul is teaching. 
That's not what worshiping by the Spirit is. Worshiping by the Spirit means that your life is given to serving God out of gratitude for the indescribable gift that He has given you in salvation. And then constantly being reminded of this gift through the Scripture, which enables you to give your life more and more to a joyful service of God, no matter what trial or difficulty He calls you to go through in this life. No, it's not the power to get out of it, but the power to joyfully walk through it. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are of the true church, the true people of God that worships God by the Spirit of God. And as you live out this magnificent truth and you see it, as you live it out, Every false teaching that tries to minimize this or take it away from you is going to have no power over you. No power over you. Point two, second mark, second mark of the true church that will, uh, that, which separates us from all forms of false teaching is that the church has a pure passion. Pure passion. Keep reading on there in verse three. We, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And glory in Christ Jesus. This isn't quite the same as when, um, as, as when we say, which we often do, that we're doing everything to bring Christ glory. That is what we're doing. That is how we're to live, uh, to make him known, to make much of him. We do do that. But, but, but what this phrase, this, this phrase means, this is in reference really to what we boast in. And in some translations, it's rendered that way. Um, and boast in Christ Jesus. This again is spoken against the false teachers. He's speaking against the false teachers again, who will make much of themselves because after all, it is they who are trying to be faithful, ob- faithfully obedient to the law and to its customs so they can boast in themselves. When, when your salvation depends partly on yourself, and it makes sense that you can have some measure of pride in it. Pride in what you have accomplished. We know, right? We know that we have nothing to truly be proud of because Christ has accomplished everything on our account. He's accomplished it for us. We know that we have nothing to be truly proud of because Christ has done it. Every, every other religion, every other religious system gives each person something to strive for, something to accomplish for themselves, something that they can point to and say, look what I've done. Look what I've done. In Islam, you must practice and repeat the five pillars, fasting, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and giving alms, prayer, and confessing Muhammad as prophet. You need to continually do all these things and you still might not make it, but if you do make it, it's because of what you've done. Hinduism, you need to continually work to eliminate evil in your life until you get yourself pure enough to become one with the Brahma. In Buddhism, you meditate, you discipline your body to get to the point where your desires go away. This leads to the elimination of suffering, but again, it's you, it's you doing these things. And in Roman Catholicism, in Roman Catholicism, we actually have a system that is actually quite similar to the Judaizers. They acknowledge a lot of the truths of the gospel, but in the end, it's up to you to keep the sacraments. So Jesus kind of gets the ball rolling for you, but you step in and finish that. And much of Pentecostalism today, the Spirit doesn't truly dwell in you unless you can speak in tongues or have visions or work miraculous works. And even in an increasing amount of evangelical circles, the gospel is still not enough. It's not enough. You also need to admit that you're a racist. You need to also be, live a life devoted to stopping injustice. But not your definition of injustice. This, this certain definition of injustice. In some camps, you must be a political activist on either side of the aisle. Christians on one side saying this. Christians on the other side saying, you've got to add this to you. 
All of those things, all of these false religions give individuals, individuals, ample opportunity to boast. And even though, especially in the evangelical circles, you hear them say, this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. You can tell that it's not a gospel issue because they get mad at other Christians who don't adopt their thinking. If it were truly a gospel issue, then you would patiently instruct and pray, right? If it is, if it is of God and not of me, then why are you so upset with people who have not been woke? If it's truly a gospel issue, how do I have the power to make myself woke? Doesn't God have to do that? And you don't get angry at people. You don't get angry at people when they don't become regenerate, do you? Not if you're a Christian, because you know that you are not in control of it. It's something that God must do. That's a gospel issue. Friends, be leery of all of the so-called Christian teaching out there that is really false teaching, that is actually trying to add works to the gospel. We're pretty good at recognizing false gospels that are trying to minimize sin. We're pretty good at seeing that. We're a little better with those false teaching, but there is a growing amount of stuff, growing amount of teaching that is trying to add new cultural issues, new cultural stances to the eternal gospel message. As you walk around in this culture and you hear the false gospels everywhere, be encouraged, be encouraged that you have a pure passion, your Boast. Your glory is in Christ and what He has done. We boast in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I mean, think of the songs we just sang. And Christ alone, His robes for mine. It's exactly what we're talking about here. This is our, the pure passion of every true believer. We recognize that we did nothing. We did nothing. Christ has accomplished everything on our behalf. What could I possibly have to boast in or glory in? I mean, just, uh, just take the last four lines of each verse of in Christ alone. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Those whose eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel sing those lines with all of their heart and they do it joyfully recognizing all that God has done for them in Christ. He is everything to us. He, right, was clothed in our sin and suffered our punishment in our place. And we are now draped in His righteousness. He lived the perfect life in our place. He took the punishment of our, of our sin in our place. He conquered death. And as a result, the grave has no final victory for any of us because of His work. And it's His power that does that in us also. He gives us the Holy Spirit. It is only through His power, the, the Spirit's power, that we're able to do anything good. If you recognize all of this and you see all that Christ has done and you never get over it, you spend your whole life never getting over that, and you live a life that brings praise and glory to Him, boasting to everyone that you meet, telling everyone that you can, not look, look what I've done, but look, just look at how much Christ has done for me. Look at what Christ has done for me. If this is your life, if this is your mindset, if that's your thinking, if that's always your thinking, how foolish and ridiculous will it sound when anyone comes up to you and offers you some sort of ridiculous idea of how you can now contribute to your salvation. When, when compared to Christ, to all that He's accomplished, and all that He continues to accomplish in us, how would you even start to consider that type of message? How would that have any kind of influence in you at all? 
We have a pure passion. We point outside of ourselves, point outside of ourselves to that which we boast in. We point to Christ. So, as false teaching permeates everything around us, it will have no effect on us because we recognize that it is only within the church where true worship is taking place. That is what already marks your life, and you see in yourself also a pure purpose, a pure passion, living for Christ, boasting in Him, boasting in all that He has done. This is different. It's markedly different from every other religious system that exists now or ever will exist. The more certain you are that you are part of the true church, the less false teaching will ever be able to have any type of power, any type of hold, any type of influence on you. And that brings us to the third point. The third mark of those who are part of the true church. A sure confidence. A sure confidence. We're actually going to see this in three subpoints, and they're very obvious in verses four through seven. Three subpoints, two of them negative, one positive, as we look at verses four through seven in the, throughout the rest of this message. You see, as Paul finishes verse three, he says that the other mark of being the true of the true circumcision, the true people of God, is that we put no confidence in the flesh. We are those who put no confidence in the flesh. This, once again, is in contrast to the Judaizers who placed all confidence in their actions and their ability to please God through the observance of customs and the law. In, these, in the following verses, Paul does something unique. He does something unique and kind of out of the ordinary. In verse 4, to demonstrate the foolishness of the false teaching, he essentially says, look... If any of those false teachers have reason to put confidence in their false teaching, then I have more confidence. And he then unpacks a list of qualifications that any actual Jew would boast about. If there was truly salvation offered in the false religion that they preached, then Paul would be the poster boy. And he would have more reason than anyone else to believe that his merit was good enough for God. Look what he says, in, starting in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless blameless. So under this third point of, of having a sure confidence in what that means, we could do sub point A, sub point A, we have no confidence in, I put nationality, no confidence in nationality. And by that, I mean, no confidence in, Paul has no confidence in his, in his pedigree, in the circumstances regarding his birth in the beginning of his life, the things that he has no control over, even though the things he lists in verse 5 would give many others confidence that they were pleasing to God, Paul didn't see it that way. I mean, again, just look what he says. This, this prestigious pedigree circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul, were he part of the Judaizers? He would be the one that they all wanted to be like. That they all pointed to and like, ah, oh, I wish that I was like that. I wish I'd have been born that way. So circumcised on the eighth day. This is a big deal because that, that was the original uh, covenant um, from God to Abraham in Genesis 17. When it came to circumcision, God told Abraham that all your males, all the males of your household will be circumcised on the eighth day. And, and the term that Paul actually uses here. In Philippians 3 is actually something along the lines of an eighth dayer. He calls himself an eighth dayer. It was a term specifically for someone who came from a devout family, a family that was devout enough to ensure that, that this be done exactly according to the Abrahamic covenant. So in order for that to be true of you, you had to be born a Jew. 
Converts to Judaism, such as many of the Judaizers, could never have this be true of them. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how devout they were, they would never be eight-dayers. With all the confidence that they could possess, they could never possess that confidence. So Paul had that. He also says he's of the people of Israel. I mean, he, he wasn't grafted into the people of Israel. He was truly a Jew through and through. If, if you truly had to be a part of Israel to be saved, if that was your salvation, was linking back to that and not linking onto Christ, Paul was born in that already. He no conversion necessary says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He, he can trace his origin all the way back to the specific son, the specific son of Israel that he came from. And it was one of the more privileged tribes, Benjamin. It was, uh, Benjamin was where the uh, eventual capital city, Jerusalem, was in the land of Benjamin. Most of Benjamin stayed loyal to Judah when the kingdom split was part of the more loyal or the more faithful, slightly more faithful southern kingdom. Paul came, Paul came from faithful stock. Again, the Judaizers who believed that one had to show themselves to be connected with Judaism, to truly be saved, would have loved to be able to describe themselves like that. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the language. He was raised in the culture. These are all the things that demonstrated that Paul was born the type of Jew that these people only wished that they could be. These are all things in which Paul had no control over, right? As, as you don't, but would demonstrate to someone that he was in a position to be confident about his standing before God that most people only wish they could have if the Judaizers were right. And Paul is saying that these are just parts of the flesh that he would never place confidence in. Paul refuses, refuses to let any privilege that he may or may not have had as a result of his parents, as a result of his nationality, as a result of his upbringing, play any part in his confidence when it came before his standing before Christ. Oh, how Christian culture needs to understand that truth today. There is nothing about your nationality, nothing about your country of origin or the wealth or poverty that your family has, nothing about any of those things that has anything to do with confidence you should or should not have as a Christian. Nothing to do with it. That is simply the context that God, the sovereign God, brought you up out of. We do not take pride or shame in anything about the place or circumstances in which we were born and had nothing to do with. It's all a decision from God that's outside your power in any way, shape, or form. There are many who may be tempted to think that something about your last name or your status as a native-born American citizen or the amount of wealth and prestige that your family has gives you some sort of leg up on others, that it may mean that you should have a louder voice or a more prominent position at the table. But Paul says there's nothing about those circumstances that truly means anything. And conversely, in our culture, is not the entire concept of intersectionality and its acceptance by so many in the church nothing more than the very invitation to place an undeserving confidence in the flesh? Assigning rights and worthiness of acceptance to an outward trait that was assigned to you by God at birth. This week I saw an excerpt from a Christian book talking about how there are certain theologians who need to be heard just because of the color of their skin. Just because of that. Nothing to do with their fidelity to the gospel. We need to hear them out because of the color of their skin. How is that anything other than calling them to put confidence in the flesh? Paul is saying, no, there is nothing about the situation in life where you were born, that you were born into, that has anything to do with where your confidence should be placed. If you were born a rich, white American citizen, there is nothing in that status that should have anything to do with where your confidence lies. If you were born a poor minority immigrant, there is nothing in that status that has anything to do with where your confidence lies. The so-called Christian culture that tries to tell people 
that those things have anything to do with their value or how important their voice is, is nothing more, is doing nothing more than pushing for a confidence in the flesh that Paul says that we are never to have confidence in. Never. A second sub point, sub point B, is that we are to have another negative one. We are to have no confidence in our ability. No confidence in our ability. So yes, uh, part of the, the main point, a sure confidence. The first one is to no confidence in this, no confidence in this. We're building up to the third one. Look at the end of verse 5 going into verse 6. He moves from what he was born into, the privilege he was born into, to that which he accomplished. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So you can see that he's shifting there from things to take confidence in, that he played no determining role in, to things that he would have played a direct role in. He gives three comparative statements using the Greek word kata, which means, which means as to. It's the thing that's rendered as as to. So it's a, it's a, it's a comparison. It's essentially, he's essentially saying, if you want to think in these terms, then, here is that, then here's what that would make me. If you want to think about these things as important, then this is who I am. As to the law or adherence to the law, the very thing that the Judaizers would have placed such a high premium on, he says, I'm a Pharisee. He's saying that if adherence to the law was really any kind of determining factor, it should be noted that I am a Pharisee. He is one who lived in accordance with the strictest part of the law. Lived in accordance with the strictest part of the law. In Galatians 1.14, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. There was a reason for confidence there, then Paul had it. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul was so passionate about Judaism that he actually went from town to town arresting Christians. These Judaizers, that Paul's warning the Philippians of, might be trying to proselytize Christians. They might be causing some sort of grief in Christians. But Paul actually persecuted them. Persecuted Christians. You think you're zealous because of your efforts to sneak in and try to convince Christians of your beliefs because you know that they're wrong and you're right? Well, I went around throwing them into prison. I stood by and approved of their executions. He was there when Stephen was stoned. I had far less tolerance toward their belief system than you do. If zeal against the teaching that there is salvation offered apart from strict adherence to Judaism means anything, then my life demonstrated far more passion for that than yours does. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Again, he's not saying sinless perfection and thought, attitude, that type of stuff. It's just to say that when it comes to any type of external righteousness... No one could stand up and offer an accusation against me. No one could point to the law and then look at my life and say, here's where he's a hypocrite. Can you Judaizers say that? Paul lived out his Judaism in such a way that there was no legitimate basis for blame that anyone could have had against him. That's what he is saying. And he is using strong and extreme examples against those who would say that the gospel isn't quite enough, but adherence to Judaism was also necessary. And when you think about what Judaizers were teaching, Paul's examples actually wouldn't make sense to them. Because they still believed in Jesus. They still believed, the Judaizers still believed messianic truths about him, they just wanted the Gentile converts to adhere to the Jewish laws and customs 
and they saw those things as necessary for salvation. They wouldn't have made the argument that you should be a Pharisee. Right? Those, those were still the people that constantly debated Jesus. And they wouldn't have made the argument that you should be a persecutor of the church. That's because they're not doing that. They're just they're trying to win the church to their thinking. The church is the people Jesus came to die for. We, we shouldn't be persecutors of the church. And they wouldn't have made the argument that you needed to be completely blameless because Jesus died for sins. But, but that's kind of Paul's point. Paul's using, he's saying, this is the logical extension to what you're thinking, what you're teaching. It goes to here. It doesn't go to some sort of union with Christianity. It goes to persecution of the church. If you're placing confidence in your own works, Paul's saying, if you're placing confidence in your own works, if you're placing confidence in your own abilities, and you're trying to show your works to God with the hope that he will accept you for them, you are hopeless. You're hopeless. You're mocking the sacrifice of Christ by thinking that there is something that you can add to it. You might as well say, look how zealously I persecuted the church that you died for in order to earn salvation. He's saying, the works that you're doing are just as effective. If they're there to please God and to earn salvation for him, they have, that, that's no different. That has no more effect on God. That doesn't grant any more righteousness to you than if you say, I'm going to persecute the church you died for, for you. Yeah, you might as well say that. Being circumcised and obeying the law for the purpose of earning salvation is just as ridiculous as passionately doing anything for the purpose of earning salvation. That's Paul's point. There is nothing that you can ever do that should give you confidence in anything in you, in your ability to earn God's favor through your own works. Your your ability to do that is just as futile as trying to earn his favor by identifying as one of his enemies, like a Pharisee. He's saying that at the end of trusting in yourself, the road that that leads to, the end of that road of trusting in yourself, taking confidence in your ability to obey and impress, even if the intention is to please God, the end of that road is not impressing God, but making yourself more and more into his enemy. That's where that leads. Because that is where all of Paul's religious zeal led him. To be an enemy of the true God. Before God stepped in and saved him. So we, as Christians, are those who take no confidence in our own abilities. And what we have done, or what we can do. So where does our confidence lie? It's the third sub-point, sub-point C... We have confidence in our new identity. Confidence in our new identity. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is now making a stark statement of contrast. A stark statement of difference. I, I have no confidence in my own nationality, I have no confidence in my own pedigree, where I'm from, how I was raised. I have no confidence in my abilities, what I've done, anything I've ever accomplished. In fact, I actually consider all of that as a loss for the sake of Christ. He's not merely saying that anything in this life that others might consider a gain, or that I might be tempted to consider something worth placing confidence in or boasting in, it's not that I consider those things to be unimportant. He's, he's actually going beyond that. He's saying, but insofar as they might be seen as a source of confidence, I consider them to be a loss. I consider them to be something negative, something that is actually working against me in my walk with Christ. So, so do, we, do we hear that? It's, it's not that it's bad to accomplish things in this life, to earn degrees, to read books, to improve yourself in many various ways. But in whatever way, any of those things might become a temptation for you to think of yourself more highly than you ought or to think that you've somehow done something that demonstrates your value to God. Any ways in which those things lead to that type of thinking, they are a loss. They are a disadvantage to you. 
a disadvantage to you. They're working against your sanctification, not for it. Again, it's not that they have no value, and far from it, but in whatever way those things lead to confidence in yourself and not gratefulness to God, the value they serve, the value they have is negative. That means you could spend years on some sort of degree, years working for some sort of job promotion, even a master's of divinity degree. And if that achievement ends up being a source of boasting in you, all that work, all that effort, that all goes into the negative column, the loss column. The word that's used here that's translated as counted. I counted a loss. It's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a past settled state that is now going to determine his thinking for the rest of his life. It says, I have determined I have determined that everything in my life that I might be tempted to think of as something that makes me special, special in the eyes of God, I've determined that that's my enemy. And that's a word that indicates that facts have been weighed and a clear decision has been made. It says it's all a loss. It's all, all of it's a loss for the sake of Christ that's why it's a loss. It's not a loss otherwise. It's a loss for the sake of Christ. All of my accomplishments, everything that I have done, everything that I could ever be proud of, everything about who I am, I consider all of that a loss so that I can be a part of Christ, so I can be a part of His accomplishments, so I can be a part of who He is. It's a trade. All of me all of my accomplishments, or all of him, all of his accomplishments. If I take all the best of who I am and what I've done and offer it to God for acceptance, I might as well be offering filthy rags, right? I'd have been better off not trying to impress him with that, not trying to impress him, and just not giving him anything at all. That's the, this is the gospel reality that true Christians live in. We, that understanding, all the false teaching that continues to mark more and more of this culture, more and more even of evangelicalism, only, all of that only offers a means to corrupt the purity of the gospel that has saved us. When you see true worship, true service in the life of the church, service that comes by the Spirit of God, and that's the only explanation for it, the joyful service to the King who has saved you, when you see that in the church, when you see that in yourself, that expects nothing in return because, because you know that there is nothing else that God could give you, what can He give you? And when you see in yourself and in the church that, that pure passion that boasts only in Christ, that refuses to take any credit for anything good that they've done because they know that it is Christ and Him only. That's the only reason good things happen through you. It's only Christ that brings good from our lives. When you see that, when you know that, and when you have a sure confidence that comes with your identity firmly in Christ and not you, not yourself, not what you do, but what Christ has done. When you have absolutely no confidence in anything you've done or ever could do, but a sure confidence in what Christ has done on your behalf. If these things are true of you, then false teaching in this culture cannot possibly ever have any power or influence over you. Just as Paul countered and said that these false teachers aren't the true circumcision, the ones who are truly God's people, in the same way, we are in the church. We are those, we are marked by these things. If this is you, if you see yourself in verse 3, Worship by the Spirit of God. Glory in Christ Jesus. No confidence in the flesh. If that's you, if that's your life, you're truly part of His people. And if you're truly His people, then your confidence rests in this. And it is impossible for false teaching to have influence over you. Because it, 
I can't possibly offer you anything you need. A so-called Christian culture that is continually saying in so many of its conferences and so much of its publishing now and most of, and even in most of its churches that, that continues to offer any sort of message about, but you also need this. Okay, add this to your gospel. That culture, that teaching will have less appeal on you than a waiter offering you a side of old moldy bread that they found on the floor to go with the best steak dinner you've ever had. That's what that teaching is going to look like to you if you are confident in this. So Christian, as we are surrounded more and more by false teaching, as, as Paul said to Timothy, as, as evil men go from bad to worse, embrace the gospel reality that you know and live in being part of the true church, glory in all of its truth, and you will, guarantee, you will stand firm. You will stand firm. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, your teaching in this. Lord, we are in a, a culture, in a circumstance, in a place where there is um, so much deceit, so much deceptive teaching. As we've said before, the, the word Christian is an adjective that means almost nothing anymore. It can be added to anything. That's where you've called us to live. So Father, I pray that we would root ourselves deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel. That we would glory in, in our identity in Christ that we would be constantly overflowing with the joy of gospel truth, that, it would, that that would mark us so well that, that none of these teachings that we see would have any influence over us. It would cause only in us grief and the desire to help people, help those who are, who are lost in a false religion that wants to add to the gospel. Help us to minister clearly to them in that. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you for the, the joy in knowing that I'm just reminding, reminding your people of truths that have already been confirmed in them. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your words to us. Thank you for giving us your scripture for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen.